One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the latest royal row, and you ask us, why does the government keep doing U-turns? So even on the New Statesman politics podcast, where we love to have 20-minute discussions about low-traffic neighbourhoods, we cannot ignore the biggest news of the day, which is an interview with uh, Harry and Meghan by Oprah Winfrey that's scheduled for this evening. Already we know some of the explosive things that have come out of it, most notably that Meghan said that she felt suicidal when she was living within the royal family. And also that one of the figures in the royal household expressed concern about what skin colour their child would end up having. So there's a racism and, and mental health row already going on and and Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer have both been asked for their opinions on it. So um, Alva, what do you think this news means for British politics and how is it being received so far? Yeah, so I feel like we should inform our listeners that before we began recording, Stephen and Anush confessed <laughs> that they don't know the differences between the Sussexes and the Cambridges. I would like to make it clear. I know what Harry, Harry and Meghan look like. And I know what Will and Kate look like. And I know that one of them are Sussexes and one of them are Cambridge. <laughs> yeah. And I have this morning, in order to write the small item on it in Morning Call, inform myself of which one is which. I just, you know how sometimes, in, in, you must have this too with the email app, where you have to kind of, you, you almost find yourself Googling something like three times just to check you're right. You're yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, like with the budget where everyone's going, oh, there's no cuts here. And you could be like, I just want to look at the red book again before I press send. <laughs> Which is a thing I literally did. I told Stephen after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I very much had that same kind of vibe with like, okay, I've checked. They're definitely the Sussexes. Whatever feedback I get on this item, no one can tell me I've got my Sussexes and my Cambridges wrong. I'm now on it. I'm across it. Well, you see, I think that that is a good place to start because I wasn't just saying that to be funny. I actually think that... That encapsulates why it's even a kind of, it's an editorial choice whether we cover it on the podcast or not. And and I think, and a much bigger thing about attitudes towards the royal family and, and the monarchy in the UK, because I suppose the thing is that the reason that the British royal family has sustained itself for so long is that like a lot of progressive right thinking people would, who like on principle are not massively on board with the principle of the monarchy are resigned to its existence and I suppose in like in British public life to have lots of opinions on the royal family or to be sort of 
vocally or passionately against the existence of the monarchy is sort of a bit weird and a bit cringe and a bit gauche that the default position of progressives on this is to just not take that much of an interest in it which I just think is really interesting in and of itself that's that's me making assumptions because maybe maybe the two of you are actually quite pro-monarchy I just think that in general in a way that's the, the great ways of the British monarchy that the way it sustains itself is by slightly blurring what it really means so it, it gets to continue as long as people don't have to be confronted with the reality of all of what it entails and and then you have a moment like this with the Meghan and Harry interview where people have are sort of like hit between the eyes with not just the, the specific allegations that Megan is leveling at the royal family but you, it's more like you have this moment every so often in the UK where you have to think about the oddness of this quite archaic institution and the power that it holds the money that it has the way it, it's a sort of an anachronism and an oddity internationally and you sort of see the strangeness of it and then you kind of go back to forgetting about it I think that makes me sound way more critical of it than I am. I'd, it's more just, I think, it's the fact that if this were a political debate, the the default position, like the default progressive position is also quite sort of small C conservative and accepting of the status quo. And that is in and of itself like a big victory for the continuity of, of this organization. I suppose I wanted to say that because I think I would imagine we have lots and lots of listeners who who feel the same way that ultimately they're just not that interested like the main way in which their opposition to this kind of an institution that they're not like massively keen on is to just like find it a bit boring whereas I'm one of those weirdos who isn't really into the idea of the monarchy but has loads of opinions on it and loves to talk about it. I don't know if the two of you agree that that's how you feel about this kind of question. And that that is the the default setting of it. I'm not going to lie. The main reason why I agreed to do the podcast on this topic is because the evident tone of enthusiasm coming through my computer from you. I just felt a bit like <laughs> Bambi to be like, no, we're going, <laughs> we're going to talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. But I actually think it's a, that's a really interesting point you've made there, which is an, obviously like my ideal state would not include I think it's good to have a, a decorative head of head of state who is separate from the head of government, who basically anyone, you know, whether they're someone who's fostered 40 different children or they've invented a vaccine or whatever, can feel sort of okay-ish about getting an award from. It's good to have that separation between the two. But it would be much better if you had a German-style one elected by the legislature or an Irish style president, or basically anything than we have in our ide- in my idealized state. I mean, honestly, it just feels it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of the monarchy. <laughs> and I just, I just therefore kind of like do have this sort of attitude. And occasionally, as people who have the misfortune to follow me on Twitter will know, I will occasionally bust out my joke whenever people start talking about it. Oh, I bet this is going to affect their re-election hopes, just to kind of indicate my sort of ambient non-disapproval. But it's so unlikely. And okay, yes, there are loads of other changes of like how we're government are probably unlikely, but but at least they have like an immediate tangible benefit. I do think there are knock-on benefits to being a country where anyone can have that decorative head of state role, right? I do think we would we would become just a little bit more meritocratic if David Beckham was president now. But 
I mean, it's so much effort. And so many of the people who campaign full time for a republic in the United Kingdom are just often so boring or they're sometimes so really unpleasant to be around. And you're just like, oh, no, I'm just going to quietly protest this by not engaging with it. And I find it really interesting you say that because one of the things I have found annoying about not so much actually this week's story, but kind of last week when the palace started doing their um, their preemptive strike, which one, yeah, maybe I'm bringing too much of, of my approach to when I cover a political party and sort of thing, but when one side or another in politics start preemptively leaking before a big interview, then, yeah, the other person did something bad, that's a sign they have something to feel guilty about, right? Like, it just, it just is. Like, I instinctively, whenever I see someone doing that, I think, okay, yeah, you, you've, you, you've got your hand in the till, haven't you? But also, I just feel like, oh, the deal I have struck with you is that I do not, when I'm doing morning call, or I'm just reading the papers on the weekend, oh, I wonder what there is. And there are three pages about the Sussexes and the Cambridges and a guy called Caruthers, who, who I, I can't even remember what side Caruthers was on. And I'm just so angry that the word Caruthers is even in my brain now. So yeah, I, th- I think you have got, you've got made a really good point there about the fact that part of the monarchy's success is just that they've kind of sufficiently like beaten down what you might describe as soft Republicans and into just being like, oh, it's never going to happen, change the channel. Yeah, I agree with you too, Alva. And actually the point that I think you you were making as well that it's not it's, it's not a great thing for our audience or, or our readers or our listeners, no matter how they feel about the royal family, just to disengage with it because it is a huge part of news and of British culture and also of the changing media and celebrity culture. There's a really good documentary on the BBC called Celebrity. I think it's a four-part documentary. And it tells us, it sort of ch- it's, it's quite disorientating if you were born around the time that Stephen and I were born, because it, it charts the change of how we engage with celebrities in this country and, and beyond. From, you know, the, the cruelty of the late 90s and early noughties and the Big Brother era to now where they do use the example of Harry and Meghan and how they try and control their own image through social media. And that gives them that sort of uh, shield against the briefings of the style that Stephen was talking about from the palace, for example, and also of the cruelty of the more traditional media. It charts that change, and that's really interesting. And it says so much about our society how how that how that change has happened so rapidly, sort of in my lifetime. And the interesting thing in that documentary is that it's all entwined. So our politics is entwined in that as well. The way that Boris Johnson cultivated a sort of cult persona around himself, which we're now seeing the result of because he is prime minister, and other politicians that have used the same gambit su- successfully. And and one comment that they make is that celebrity is always going to matter. We're always going to be morbidly fascinated in the lives of the rich and famous, even though they're engaging with us through social media without that middleman mattering so much anymore. You know, there's paparazzi who kind of lament the rise of Instagram because their pictures of whichever celebrity they're chasing around town no longer matter because that celebrity can broadcast their own pictures and videos and that goes straight straight to our phones. So we're always going to be interested in these figures and, and there is there is a dimension to it that tells you a lot about how we as a society feel about our public figures and how we would like them to be and also how we receive information about them, how we consume media as well. So you're right, Albert, like it's, it is a massively important story for all those reasons and it probably is a little bit complacent 
you know, for me as Britain editor of a national publication to, to say that I'm not particularly interested in it, because of course I am, because I am interested in all of those factors around it and what it says about modern life. I don't know whether I'll be watching the interview, but um, I feel like I will know pretty much everything that, that comes out of it because of the nature of how these things are dripped out beforehand to reel us in and the fallout that will be in the headlines tomorrow as well. Plus, people will start being asked questions about it. You know, I think Boris Johnson is doing a press conference tonight. I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't a number of journalists who slip in a question about it to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think I think that's the thing as well, that that this is is so reflective in so many different ways of our political culture at the moment, because Harry and Meghan are very political and the royal family is political in that it is small c conservative in like every way also probably large c conservative if you think about it but (laughs) when you think of the modern world and British society there was a a real opportunity with Harry and Meghan to absorb a slightly more progressive and more celebrity-like aspect into the royal family so it wouldn't really change the existing members of the royal family and the way they come across with the way they do things and you know the first mixed race member of the royal family politically there was an opportunity to have to absorb a slightly more progressive wing into the royal family alongside all the more conservative stuff and you saw that in sort of big and small ways that if you think about the philanthropy and the charity stuff that the royal family does their duties you know as working royals it's all quite small c conservative Staff, or they, I think individual members of the royal family take on slightly more progressive or unusual things. So, you know, Prince Charles has been quietly championing like the climate emergency and is really interested in things like rewilding and organic produce and stuff. And William and Kate have talked about the importance of mental health. Every so often, they absorb these new things into their package of philanthropic projects, which are, and the rest of the stuff is, you know, just like ponies and all this kind of very inoffensive charitable stuff. And every time that they absorb one of these new things, it becomes a little bit more acceptable across the political spectrum. So the climate emergency and mental health are preoccupations of all parts of the political spectrum now. And it's slightly signaled by the royal family doing that too. But when when Meghan and Harry joined, Meghan was quite quietly most of the time, but really like owning her blackness. Like the wedding really reflected that and her charitable interests really reflected that. And the kinds of causes that she were championing were more... Like everything is political, whether they're small C conservative or not, but hers were more sort of progressively political in that she, one of her first big projects was she sort of privately visited a soup kitchen at the foot of Grenfell every few weeks for a period of months and then released a cookbook with some of the survivors of, of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And I suppose that's, you know, that's as sort of quietly progressive as you can you can get as a member of the royal family but she would take on these things which are are just sort of a little bit more I suppose like pushing the button on those things a little bit more than other members of the royal family would do and it's reflective of a lot of the politics of younger people in the UK and you know reflective of all the people in the UK who aren't 
white having someone who is mixed race in the royal family it's reflective of the fact that a lot of families aren't just from the one place but you know having an American an American daughter-in-law or whatever is quite normal there was a chance really for the royal family to slightly adapt as well as that political stuff you know to have an American celebrity in the family was clearly an opportunity for them to slightly modernize so across the board there was an opportunity there to look a little bit more like modern Britain and to reflect the diversity of views on so many things at a point when there is this sort of post-Brexit political chasm but instead they kind of rejected that like the the effort to sort of absorb those views and that kind of person into the royal family really really didn't work and she had a, a personally awful time from what she says and I think that that's there's a lot of significance there in terms of the human drama and stuff, but but I think more importantly about the the extent to which that institution can adapt to the times. Like there was this opportunity there that the royal family didn't seize, and it was a test that it basically failed. It means that there's a there's a whole kind of type of person who's been very alienated by this. You know, there's a type of person who might make the the jump from being the kind of person who who thinks, well, if we didn't have if we didn't have a royal family today, you couldn't make the case for it. So I'm kind of against it, I suppose, but I never really think about it. Making the leap from that kind of a position to thinking about it differently and being more actively opposed to it. So I think I think it's just it's just significant as a reflection of all of those bigger divides in British society at the moment. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Our question today is, why does the government keep setting up future U-turns? Marcus Rashford's campaigns first and now nurses pay. And there's so many other examples as well. So, Stephen, why why do they keep putting themselves in the position where they're going to have to backtrack? The the interesting question is, will they keep having to backtrack? Because Mm -hmm. one, one answer is, well, because we've reached the end of the point where you can continue to make cuts without encountering severe political resistance, both for the cuts yet to come, but also the sort of backlog of cuts, right? I mean, so let's take, actually, as a correction of something I said a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how crime was down. One of the reasons why crime is still quite low is because a large chunk of online crime is categorised differently. But broadly, the political salience of crime keeps going down and down and down throughout the long 90s. 
down, down, down to the end of the Labour government, down, 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 even as the Conservatives are cutting police, and then it just starts spiking again. Well, in the middle of the last decade, in the 2016-2017 period. And for a long time, we forget when Diane Abbott was doing her whole, the police cuts are bad, you know, she was getting a lot of kind of like, oh, why is she going on about this? Oh, you know, she's not sincere. Like a lot, a lot of tutting from the lobby and the commentariat. And then, you know, June 2017 happened and then suddenly it was universally agreed and this was a new political tactic. And so some of it, I think, is basically the the government just keeps bumping up against the political constraints on what it wants to do economically. The interesting question is that the political bind the Labour Party has been in on austerity basically for the last decade has been that the Conservatives have been able to continue austerity in non-politically controversial ways faster than the Labour Party has been able to make anti-austerity arguments relevant. Now, it obviously wasn't helping for the first half of that time. They would do a kind of like, we won't do this, we'll pay it for the bankers' bonus taxes. Didn't you? Wasn't that last week as well? It wasn't helping for the first half of the decade. They were quite hesitant, but it also had to become more politically difficult. But I think the big question is actually, are they going to have to U-turn on these things? Because yes, they're individually unpopular, and I think if those four billion pounds of planned cuts, let alone, you know, even before we get to the cuts that were already baked into the cake, do happen, I think that will create political problems for the government. But in an odd way, the exit mechanism they don't have anymore is a small majority that can very easily be overcome by rebellions. And it's one thing when it's opposition day debates. It's one thing when it's something which is fronted by Marcus Rashford. But even something like the NHS pay freeze, right, where um, so that is de facto what it is. At best, it's a real terms cut for lots of people. Yes, you know, Labour is going out campaigning against it. Yes, the Green Party is going against campaigning uh, against it. But ultimately, it's not clear to me that they are going to actually be able to have to U-turn on it because I'm not convinced that it, it's a huge thing to rebel against departmental expenditure. I just don't think that's going to happen. But that does raise the question of the way they've got out of all of the more difficult stuff is the parliamentary party. And if the parliamentary party doesn't save the government from the social implications of those four billion pounds, well, that's going to be quite tough. I think that is the most important factor when thinking about the U-turns that this government has been forced to make and the ones that could potentially be down the line in future. So something that I'm going to keep an eye on is the money allocated for leaseholders who are living in buildings with dangerous cladding on them. Obviously, we've spoken about this before, so I won't go over it again, but there are lots of people who are going to have to pay for something that is no fault of their own. I see some something like that potentially changing. Maybe it wouldn't be a direct U-turn because they've already got a policy in place that they could just say that they were expanding. But because there's enough, I think, opposition or at least pressure from the Tory backbenches on this, I think that's going to make it more likely that they're going to have to change that policy. It was the same with extending the £20 a week universal credit uplift. I thought that there was far too much pressure from Tory MPs whose constituents are directly affected for them not to extend that. Okay, they've only extended it for six months, but let's see what happens in six months time when unemployment is going to be at a high because of the end of the furlough scheme, whether they can justify just taking that support away for so many families. So I I think with, with things like that, Although both of them are obvious issues for the Labour Party and and charities and your usual kind of think tank network to campaign on or against, there was enough, I think, pressure from from Tory MPs for the government to reverse its position. And not everything, like you say, with the 1% nurses pay rise, not everything is obviously going to have that factor which will force the government's hand. 
But it's interesting in itself, isn't it, that that's one of the motivators, because it suggests that they don't know their own party very well, or, or the concerns of their own MPs. And that, if you were being generous, you could say that a lot has changed for people over this pandemic year. I wrote a piece about the number of people who were previously in quite sort of well-off or affluent positions who are now having to rely solely on welfare, for example. So there's been, you know, a lot of demographic changes or sort of lurches in this period that perhaps the government couldn't necessarily keep tabs on. But also it does suggest that they're still not communicating particularly well with, with their MPs or listening very well to what motivates their MPs. So that's, you know, that that's an interesting part of why these U-turns are cropping up in the first place. You know, if they had more of a process of engagement and perhaps that's improving now since sort of the change within number 10 then they would perhaps not get to that embarrassing situation in the first place. And of course, the, the people who it's most embarrassing for are the ministers and and the MPs, you know, who have to go on political programmes all the time and defend these positions that they don't necessarily agree with or that they're, you know, they, they have a bunch of colleagues they know who are very exercised about. And then the, the next week it changes. So that's that is really grating for an MP to go through that process. And the more they're made to do it, the less goodwill there is. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question that the the nurses pay is one of the examples along with Marcus Rashford and, and free school meals that was mentioned in the question because I agree with both of you that I'm not really convinced that that will ever result in a U-turn but I was surprised this morning to see quite how stark public opinion is on that that the vast majority of people do think that that isn't enough. I thought especially, I didn't think the coverage of it was very good. And like the point that you were making, Stephen, that it is a pay freeze effectively, I don't think was communicated necessarily that well on some mainstream news because it's a live question whether a 1% uplift in nurses' pay will be above inflation or not. The government is maintaining it is, so it does amount to an increase. But the OBR's forecasts for inflation would suggest that that is effectively a pay cut because it projected to fall below inflation. So this talk of a 1% pay rise when that isn't really what it is, or certainly it's arguable whether that's what it is or not, would mean that people still thought of that as a pay increase and thought, well, you know, these are hard times. 1% as a pay increase is, is all we can afford. I thought maybe public opinion would be more split on that, but it really, really isn't. I think my slight feeling is that maybe this is going to prove to be totally wrong, but it does feel to me at least that in the past few months with slightly different people in number 10, that there have been fewer mistakes like that in terms of making mistakes that MPs are very likely to rebel over slash there are still plenty of things that conservative MPs are likely to to rebel over, but it seems as though the government has put more thought into them and is more prepared to take that fight on. There's an exception there with the international aid budget because that's a that's a decision dating quite far back. So even though that's still a live issue, I'm, I'm not really including that under those things. But I feel like, for example, the decision to give only a small pay increase, effectively a pay freeze to nurses is part of everything we were talking about with the budget last week, that it's a it's a pillar of, of really what Rishi Sunak is trying to go for, because it's not a pay cut, or sort of, it's difficult to frame it as a pay cut, even if that's what it amounts to. 
And since he is dead set on projecting this image as sort of tough and financially responsible, giving nurses a teeny, teeny, tiny pay uplift that amounts to almost nothing is the kind of difficult decision that he is sort of almost leaning into. I mean, I know that he has tried to frame it as, you know, protecting public services, but making difficult decisions elsewhere. I still think that he is slightly leaning into the austere image because he thinks that that's electorally helpful for them. So I think that that one is unlikely to amount to a U-turn, despite how unpopular it is. And then on the other ones, I agree with you, Anush, that it actually points to a different problem that that the Conservatives don't seem to know their own party that well. But I feel like maybe that is changing a little bit with different personnel in number 10. I feel like I'm going to be proved wrong on that. But that's that's my feeling for now. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me at Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And please don't forget to ask us a question for the next podcast by going to youaskus.co.uk. Leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.